Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I find that hearing from leaders who've built and led organizations, and then most importantly, have stopped to reflect on what worked and what didn't is particularly inspirational. And so today I'm going to talk with a leader who's been there and done that. We want to hear about his experiences on the ground, navigating conflict, creating alignment, making a turnaround successful, having tough conversations, maybe even dealing with difficult personalities and expanding into unknown territory. And in addition, that favorite topic, boosting confidence, all of which I'm going to argue is absolutely essential for executing. So my guest today is Chris Elias, and he's an author, thought leader, and advisor who uses his experience from the corner office to help revolutionize cultural dynamics in the workplace and thereby transform companies. So Chris began his professional career at Big Boy Restaurants, which is was and is an international restaurant chain with food manufacturing, global concessions, distribution, property management. Chris eventually took the leadership reins there, producing one of the most prosperous turnarounds in the company's history. And then after 20 years of success with corporations, Chris has parlayed his passion for teaching and helping others into consulting in the last 20 years. In this recent book, The Execution Culture, Results Happen When Culture Meets Execution, which he's co-authored with Mark Freyer, and Chris explained the importance of corporate culture and the four pillars of culture that drives growth. Through his company, Nexecute, he provides clients with a hands-on approach using the results optimizer, which now has over 35 customizable tools and processes to help a healthy and productive company culture. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Wanda. It's good to be here. It's good to have you here. And I love—I just have to say, I love this dynamic. I don't often get it. I get leaders who can talk about their recent experiences, but frequently they haven't really stopped and said, how does my experience translate to another company? And you've got you know, like two halves of your career, one leading an enterprise and a turnaround, and the second one is teaching others to do it. So I'm thrilled to have you here. I, you know, I always ask at the top of this question, so why? Why does it matter? But for you, I want to ask a very specific, why does it matter? I want to know, what do you think most companies are missing and why are then are you passionate about helping them? Yeah. So today, I think most companies are missing trust at some level. I think that, that that's kind of one of the root pieces that's gone. I, you know, Generally, over the last 20 years of me working with other companies, I would say that execution is the issue, that there's always something that that's blocking execution. And trust is one of those, those pillars that stops execution from happening or enables it to happen, right? Today, more than anything, you know, here here we are at at, at the um, at conducting this broadcast. We're you know kind of on the end of the COVID crisis, and we've we've had a major issue with people at work. People have been remote now. People, some people are going back. Some people don't want to go back. You know, stress in times really show a true company's colors and. It's been my experience with all the companies I'm working with that a lot of trust issues have arisen. Trust with leadership, trust between people, trust has gotten broken in, in a lot of different ways. So I, I think that that's probably one of the biggest issues that's there. And 
you know, why do I do this? Why, why, why is this important for me? What, how, how do I engage in it? You know, uh, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a competitive guy and I get really um, excited about watching the companies I work with, um, whether clients are back, even in my corporate life, uh, perform and outperform others. So, you know, the best way to kind of, you know, energize uh, myself and enjoy my work is to see that performance. And so whatever the issue is, if we can find a way to break it down and move a company forward so that they can move through and execute, that's, that's energizing for me. And, and so the hottest topic today being trust, but execution being the overlying or lack of execution in most cases. Right. I see, I'm thinking about a particular company at the moment that I am working with, with the top team where they are sort of executing. They have a great plan. I think they actually believe in that plan and it's sort of happening, but there's this sense that we have a plan and we just follow the plan and the plan is it and the plan is everything. As opposed to coming back and saying, hold on, let's make sure we're in the right alignment to use a word I know you like to talk about. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure we've built the trust within the team and the camaraderie within the team. So we actually really rely on each other when that execution doesn't go to plan. And let's do a little advanced planning when the plans don't work the way the plans were supposed to work. What are we going to do then? I find all of those are missing. Um, so in my short description, would you say the core element there is trust or what do you hear in that story that you think is essential? You know, uh, trust could be at play. Um, more than likely, I found that it is. And, and it's because the level of trust between people on a team, and let's talk about the executive team, because that's really what's going on um, in this organization you're describing. It starts at the executive team. The higher the trust, the more they will engage with each other, mm -hmm. whether it's challenging each other, pushing each other. Um, Patrick Lencioni says in his book, The Five Dysfunctions of the Team, he, he says, um, when, when you don't have trust, they don't engage in conflict. And you get this kind of artificial harmony. I, I love that concept of artificial harmony because I see it all the time. They'll play nice with one another and maybe they do understand and get the plan, but are they really pushing each other to perform? Are they really, really challenging each other? Are they engaging? Um, are they sitting back and letting the leader of the team make all the decisions? You know, are, so, so at the top, you've got to have a team of leaders, not a, a team of followers with one leader. How do they engage with each other? And that lack of engagement, you know, is there. The other thing that happens is, is and this could be a little tangential, but people want to stick to a plan to a fault sometimes. <laughs> yes. Right? And, um, you know, there's an old saying that, that um, you know, what is it? No plan survives the first minute of battle or something like that, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you know it's, it's, it's great to be in the room and plan. But what happens once you really get in? I, I believe you got to keep the end goals in place. But how you get there, there could be many, many paths. And we have to be flexible. And I don't think that flexibility happens when people aren't willing to challenge the status quo. They aren't willing to challenge what's in play. If they believe in their mind that there's a part of the plan that's flawed, but they're not saying anything about it. And all those actions occur because there's some lack of trust somewhere in the system. Right. I see today... Every team I talk to and every leader I speak with say trust, 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 trust. We have to have better trust. We trust. I mean, everybody knows how important it is. Honestly, Chris, I don't think anybody really knows how to get there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny. It seems like it should be simple, right? It does. But a lot of times they don't want to engage necessarily in the simple things that will help get them there. So okay. think about this. So what is trust? 
right? You know, what actually is it? I'll, I'll tell you how we define it. And I'd love to know your thoughts on it. But we, we define it as a decision to let go based on the belief that the intent and ability of another is good. Mm. Now, think, think about that for a minute. So, so the key words there are intent and ability. So yep. the level of trust we have comes down to that. And so ability is kind of easy to measure. You know, you know, if you've got some type of measurements in place and you're watching an individual, et cetera, you kind of know whether they can do the work or not. And you'll delegate that work based on whether you trust that they can complete the work. Mm-hmm. But it's the intent side that trips us up. Now, let's get into another piece of psychology. We're all wired to a negative bias. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds negative, right? But we're all wired to a negative bias, which means that, that in, in, a, in a completely neutral situation, if there's a right and a wrong way to take something, we'll, we'll more often take it the wrong way. Now, the reason for that goes hundreds of thousands of years or thousands of years of evolution, where that's how we protect ourselves. The, mm-hmm. flighter, the fight or flight mechanism, all those things come into play. Um, and so, you know, think about how many times even you've seen an email or, or, any of our listeners, you know, you read an email and if, if there's a right and a wrong way, I mean, how many times you've been triggered after reading that email <laughs> when there may not have been any t- intent behind it. And so given an unknown situation or a lack of knowledge, we will often assign ill intent where there is none. Yeah. That, that just happens and it's natural and it's normal and I'm not being critical. It's just kind of what happens. So now you have to say, well, what does it take to get to a point where you believe that somebody's intent is good, even when they're challenging you, even when they're asking that question? They may be asking the question purely for their own knowledge, and yet you feel like you're being challenged, right? How do you get beyond that? Well, the simplest thing is by knowing the person, yeah, by taking a little bit of time. And we're not taking that time today. And in, in an environment where a lot of people have been remote for two years, there are, there are, there are people I was at a meeting last week, as a matter of fact, I had to go up to Boston for a meeting last week. And there was a person in the room in that meeting. It was our first in-person meeting two, two years. There was a person on the executive team that nobody had met in person. Mm-hmm. You can't have trust with that person. I mean, you know, you're going to have some levels of it, but, but do you really know a person if you haven't spent time with them? No, you can't. And so we have to find ways for people to get to know who we are at a deeper level. And I'm not talking about getting into the deep, dark secrets of a person, all that stuff, but, you know, just the basics of saying, yeah, you know what, there are, there are a lot in common. Now there is one other aspect to this. If you don't mind me going on for for it. Yeah. Right. One of the things we look at a lot when we go into companies are the core values of the company. Mm -hmm. And the core values are the root of culture for a company because they will really define who should be part of the organization? Who should not? Now, I'm not making a judgment on whether people are good or bad people. I'm making a judgment on whether they're a good or bad fit for the culture. And so if we believe all the science um, that, that core values are the foundation of healthy um, relationships or alignment of core values, then if you want to have people who have a chance of getting along together in an organization, you want to see some level of alignment the core values of the company. So it's really important that a company has gotten their core values right. We've gone into a lot of companies where they really sat around in a room and picked words that they liked, and that's, that's their core values, but they're not the acting values of the organization. Core values are living and breathing. And once you're really clear on what those core values are for a company, and you get really, really obsessive about hiring people aligned to those core values, you, you won't guarantee success for relationships, but you give a relationship every chance of success. And 
what happens subconsciously are if, if your core values and my core values have some level of alignment subconsciously, there's almost an innate trust that just starts building just because, you know, because we, we sense this, but if our values are diversely different, sooner or later, there will be a breakdown, right? And the relationship won't succeed. And it gets harder to trust somebody who isn't. So there is the secondary layer that you want people to have some level of alignment on a common level that gives us the opportunity to build trust. And that's where company core values come into play. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm going to shift this gear a slightly different direction because I think it's related to this notion of core values and trust and challenge. So as much as we would like to say, you know, let's compete externally, the truth is there's competition internally. Yep. I mean, you said you're a competitive person. I'm sure as you were rising the corporate hierarchy, you wanted to do better sales, better results, better whatever in your group than somebody else. That's human. And I would actually argue that's good for performance of the company. But if it gets too powerful... It disrupts everything. So what have you seen in your experience, either personally leading a company or as a consultant and how you keep that competition at a healthy level? So I guess the question that comes to my mind is competition at what cost Mm -hmm. and what's the purpose of it? So I think there's a difference between being a competitor for a team versus being a competitor for yourself. And that exhibits itself in certain behaviors. Um, I, I liked competitive people on my team and, and I like it in my, my clients as long as they're competitive for the organization. Mm-hmm. So wanting to, you know, wanting to drive the most sales, for instance, and being the best performing, if I'm doing that because it's good for the company, knowing that in the long run, it's good for me too. I mean, that's how you get promoted. That's then, then I've got the right intent. If I'm doing it, the cost of others purely for myself, then that's, in, that's ill intent. That, this right. is just my opinion, right? These are my right. core values probably coming out here because there are those that would probably argue with me and, and that's all fine too. Um, and so, you know, we don't tend to tolerate people who put themselves beyond, before the organization. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm great with people that will drive for greater performance, want to be the best, um, but they're doing it for the sake of the organization, sake of their teams. There, there's a real key difference there. I see that slide, you know, yes, more sales is good for the organization. Yes, check. Uh, you know, within all the appropriate bounds of risk profiles and et cetera. And I watch it slide. And it's just a tiny little step over a boundary line where the leader suddenly realizes, oh, this is how I'm going to get the next senior level job. And so, yes, it's good for the company, but the emphasis becomes about the leader's next position as opposed to the whole of the greater company. And it's a very fine sliver. But once you cross that line, and that's sometimes really hard to pull it back. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, because you get into this whole, um, it's it's the emotional part of it. And, and Look, you know, there is a certain amount of, um, if we believe Maslow's hierarchy, right, there's a certain amount of at the base level, it is all about me and my success and more money means better life for my family, better life for me, et cetera. Uh, Again, if it's not spilling into hurting others in the organization, I don't mind that. Okay. No, um, I kind of want to know who the next person in line is going to be for a role. I mean, I'm doing my job as a leader 
if I've got a couple people that are potential candidates to, to, to backfill, and I don't mind that they're vying for it a little bit, but the minute it becomes toxic, I got to have a conversation with that person. And if they can't dial it back, then, then we've got a problem. Now, it, it also though does come down to core values. And I have to challenge myself and say, okay, um, does this person's core values then align to what we're doing as the organization? That's assuming the organization's core values are about that. If you've got an organization that has a core value that, you know, it's, it's all about me and we want people who are individually competitive and we want them to, to fight each other and drive, well, that's okay. That's for that organization. It's not necessarily what I'm going to look at, but there are places in this world where that is an acceptable behavior that's and right. that's part of the value system of the company. And thus those people are a great fit for those companies. So there's no such thing as a good or bad core value. We make judgments on those values based on our value systems, and we'll make judgment on others based on their alignment. But at the end of the day, we're not judging good or bad people. We're judging good or bad fit. The organizations that I work with, you know, the, that kind of me first mentality, you know, and, and I'm not talking, taking that little step up across the line, but I'm talking about taking that step you know, beyond the sliver, as you described it, where they're hurting others, that's not an acceptable behavior. And that person, if their behavior doesn't correct, they won't exist. And if they actually have a natural value to act that way, honestly, they're better off somewhere else because there are companies that that would fit. Okay. I get that. And I certainly do see company cultures that slide in that direction and encourage it and doesn't seem, so they, they do tend to plaster values like teamwork and collaboration on their walls but we often know that those values are not actually really what are the lived values within the organization. So right. that's the, uh, that's the artificial value that I talked about before yep. they sat around and said, Oh, we, you know what? We got to have, we got to have teamwork. <laughs> you know, how could you not have teamwork in there? You know what? If you're not a teamwork organization, don't put it on your values. If it's, yeah. if, if it's about competing with each other, but competition is a core value. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I can't tell you how many times I've seen artificial, you know, core values on the wall. They sound great, but you know, it's like, okay, integrity on the, the core value statement of a bank. I'm like, well, of course, it's kind of like, duh. You know, if you're a thief, how are you going to survive in a bank, right? I mean, yeah. you know, is that really a, a core value or is that more like a permission to play behavior? So yeah, we get into some semantics, but it is kind of funny. And that's why having real core values is so essential. Essential. Yeah, I've often said to clients, I'd like to see no one have a core value on integrity. Because if you don't have that as a core value, like we don't want you to be in business, get out of here, go away, do something else. So what are you going to yeah. put the op? I mean, it's not up there. And I often say the same thing about teamwork. Of course, you got to have some teamwork in the organization. You, you know, Do you want to hire people who can't play with others? I, I don't think so. So now what is it beyond those two that you actually really care about? Yeah, All right, Chris, yeah. let's slide into a related, but a slightly different topic. And I find it fascinating. I use the word conflict and people go, oh, no, 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 we don't have conflict. Or, and then, then every now and then conflict becomes that theme that everybody is talking about. And it's one of those that I'm hearing now coming and going with the help me, help me, help me, help me. And I think it's not raw conflict as in we're in knockdown drag out fight as much as it is tension between relationships competing priorities competing metrics of success competing whatever and sometimes different personality types get into that so talk to me about your experiences of conflict in an organization and how do you help people manage those tensions so as i think about conflict i want to create a distinction between types of conflict, right? There is, there is such thing as healthy conflict. 
Yep. And we want to promote and encourage healthy conflict in the organization. So those are things like, as I was talking about, with, with greater trust, you're able to engage in healthier conflict. So that could be, you know, holding holding another person on the team accountable to what they what they promised, right? right. You know, and, and them holding you accountable. Challenging the idea, okay, that, that they yep. put on. And not, you know, it's it's one thing to attack a person, another thing to attack an idea. I'm talking about challenging ideas so that we get to the best possible answer. Um, being feeling like you can say your piece and say your mind without penalty. So that's healthy conflict. And, and what we want to do is we want to promote that. The behaviors you're discussing, the unhealthy conflict, um, there are different personality types, right? You know, if you think about it, we, we, we often say, you know, we, we think, believe that there are three kind of, you know, conflict styles. Um, there's, there's move against, move mm-hmm. toward and move away. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, in, in some people who are move away, you know, when conflict occurs, they want to back away and, and, and move, yep. you know, get away from it. Move against are the people that, that will actually dive right in and, 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 you know, kind of rebut and then move toward are the people that want to try to understand and, and get in the play. And I'm not saying that one's better than the other. They're just three particular styles. Um, I like to understand really what's going on at the base of, of conflict. And, you know, part of your question, I want to make sure I answer it is this exists in every company. Mm-hmm. Okay. If the company's performing, there is conflict. Some of it's positive, some of it's negative. We have to understand what the root cause of that conflict issue is. If, if it's truly a competitive thing and, it, and it's just maybe a negative approach to holding each other accountable, then what we want to do is sit down and, and, and train on how to do that in a more positive manner, how to, how to build trust in the, in the process of conflict as opposed to breaking it, right? Because there's a right and a wrong way for me to hold you accountable, right? Yeah. There's, you know, if, if I'm attacking you, that's one thing. If, if on the other hand, I'm, I'm challenging you, that's another, right? Semantics, but it's important stuff. If on the other hand, we're getting into these personality and conflict style types, Mm-hmm. The next level of understanding is, is let's recognize what the different styles are. And if I know, if, if let's say I'm in a supervisory position to you, and I recognize that you might be, let's say, a move away kind of person, and I got to challenge you with your performance in a, in a one-on-one review, then I might need to recognize that, you know what, maybe what I need to do is plan for two or three conversations with you. And let's first sit down and let me lay out the issue that I need to discuss with you and put it out there and then recognize that you might need time to, to, to back away and think, right? Some people need that. If on the other hand, I know that you're a move against and you're going to want to come and challenge, then I want to be ready with some clear examples. And I want to make sure that we keep the emotions down and calm in that conversation, right? So these are some techniques at a leadership level. Peer-to-peer can operate the same way, but it's a little trickier because the game isn't exactly the same. You know, if, if, if I'm meeting with my boss, then, you know, yeah. conflict will occur. And that's one thing, but peer to peer, we may work on, on butting heads a little bit more. That's really, the leader has to recognize that one, that's going to happen. And two, they have to have ways of managing those conflicts, whether it's bringing people in the room and having the right conversation, et cetera. Now, lastly, there are some behaviors that are pervasive in general yeah. and need to change. Um, that's where probably sometimes a harder line approach from a leader on challenging the behavior has to occur. And, you know, one of the, the philosophies I think about is, is, is that um, Susan Scott says in Fierce Conversations, great line of the book, it says that the, 
you know, when confronting somebody about a behavior, right, the, the, um, the results that we fear that may occur as a result of confronting that behavior are guaranteed to occur if we don't. So, so leaders have to be quick in addressing the behaviors as they start coming into play um, and working towards moving the behavior in a positive direction. If they don't, so, so again, if I have this conversation with you, I'm worried about it. It could break the relationship. You could leave the company. I could lose a friend, whatever the case may be. But if I don't address it with you, it's, that's going to happen. The re- it's just going to get worse and worse and worse till the behavior is, is addressed. So there is this delay that occurs. And, and, I'm, I'm, and I'll be blunt. I think there's some bad leadership going on in organizations because we have leaders that are not confronting the behaviors when they see them happening. And if we don't get to that place of candor where we're talking about the behaviors and, and again, in a respectful way, I don't want to create a fight there, but if we're not getting people in the room, nipping those things in the bud, then we're going to have a problem. The last level of analysis does come down to the, the question of the, the individuals who are engaging in conflict, how are their core values aligned with one another? And if you have corporate core values, the real ones, you, you have to evaluate whether or not either or both are a good fit to the company's core values and recognize if one is and one isn't, then you got the basis of conflict anyway. And you have to consider what the long-term potential and success of that relationship could be. Often it's not a good outlook. Yeah. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler. I don't know if you know her work or not. Optimal Outcomes is the title of the book. It's all about conflict and it's all about how it ties to values. And she has a concept I've not heard from anyone else about shadow values. Mm-hmm. So you know, we have our core values that we're willing to post on the wall, wear on a t-shirt, you know, I'm proud of those. It's great. But there are some shadow values that I might not want to identify about myself. They often come out of those really positive ones, but they're there. Um, and she says that a lot of conflict comes from not recognizing the shadow values. Yeah, it's, it's one of those double-edged swords. I, I think Lencioni talks about accidental values. If, if you haven't identified core values in the organization, they can often be the negative side of the values and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But look, we all have bad behaviors, every, every single one of us, and those are reflective of some level of value systems as well. I think the, the goal for me is to understand what the true core values of a person are, whether it's through proper interviewing or evaluation processes. And then, you know, the, the theory of a shadow value, I, I think they're values. I think you, you just either have values. You, we all have values and, and here are the ones that drive our behaviors. The shadow values, I, I would think, I don't know the concept that well, but to me, that's what, what are you trying to hide? Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I want to know the real person. I want, I want the real person to show up. Don't hide yeah. anything. And let's see if you're a fit. And by the way, if you're not a good fit for us, you're a good fit somewhere else. And if you're hiding those values in living, it's creating a lot of stress for you, right? It creates right. stress for everybody around. And, but I agree completely. I think that the companies do a poor job of, in general, of, of interviewing and hiring for core values. They also do a poor job of moving people out who aren't aligned to the core values. And people will adjust their behaviors in short terms, especially after a conversation yeah. they're early those things. They do it subconsciously that they don't want others to see. But absolutely, those are probably those shadow values in some cases are reflective of the real core values of the person. And when that's in conflict with the organization, it is then in conflict with the others around them. Right. All right. So this whole notion of having conflict in the organization, I get that we've got to have a good degree of trust, meaning we have to know each other and we have to know something about each other's intent and ability, but intent is the hard one 
so that I can assume more positive intent or find ways to do that. We have to have core values because those are going to help us understand what the intent really is um, and make sure that we're all aligned behind them and we mean it. And we're not just faking it and giving lip service to it. This is how we're actually going to behave. And then we have to be willing to have some difficult conversations when there's a behavior that isn't working or when I'm not a completely agreement with an ad idea or a strategy or an approach or a result that I'm going to have that candid conversation with people because there's enough trust and I know we're doing it for the right intent, for the right values. Okay. Beyond those trust, intent, um, ability, and core values, are there any other ingredients for having a good fight? And I mean, good fight, meaning one that's worth having, that's worthwhile. Probably passion. Okay. Right. Which, which probably ties a lot with those other things. I, you know, are you really going to fight about something you're not passionate about? I, I think that the passion will, will, will drive people. And then the more passion that somebody has on a topic, the more probably willing they're going to be to engage on it. Again, what will make it a good fight though, versus a bad fight, passion can show, but it's how the passion shows. Mm -hmm. So again, there, there's always good and bad behaviors. If the passion is showing as an example of yelling at another person, attacking another person, then that's going to be an unhealthy fight, right? Yeah. If the passion is showing that I'm really fighting for a principle I believe in, and at the end of the day, even if the leader decides in the other direction, I'm a good team member and I'll go along with it. Maybe I won't agree, but, but at least I've, I've, I've been heard and I've gotten my, then those are, those are healthy things. So passion would be one. Another ingredient would be listening. You know, more often than not, we spend our time in an argument trying to figure out what we're going to say next and how we're going to rebut as opposed to listening for understanding. And if you, if you take some time to really listen to what the other person is saying and trying to say, even asking a few questions, one, it might give you a better argument later on, or two, you might just understand their perspective. And again, though you might choose a different path, at least that understanding allows for building trust and building a healthier right. relationship. Right. People don't listen a whole lot. The, in all these conversations and meetings, I can, I can literally watch and tell you who during a conversation is formulating what they're going to say, which means that they're missing half of what's being said around the table. Cause you can just see it in their eyes. You can just see it in their body language. I agree Listening with that. Doesn't happen. I think I personally believe in conflict that one of the most underutilized skills is just taking the intent to understand somebody's perspective. Even if I adamantly disagree with it, I would never conclude that. I have no clue how you got there, but let me just make sure I understand what it is you are saying. Just yeah. listening to that perspective, way underutilized skill. Um, and in fact, I find 90% of the conflict situations that I end up trying to resolve are because people haven't listened to each other and it's gone on for years. And well, then there's resentment. And it's not being listened. They're not listening at the leadership level. So two right. people can be engaged in conflict on a team, on a topic, and the leader is sitting there figuring out how they're going to leverage and they're not listening. I, it's just, you know, take a couple minutes to listen and it'll shortcut everything. It's amazing. It is yeah. amazing. There are some exercises we do with teams on this one that I think is really incredible. And once they get, they see it, they get the power of it. Yep. But if you don't put a structure around it, they'll wobble back to the same old behaviors they've always done. I, it's a fascinating phenomenon. Well, and structure is tough, right? So, so think about this. I mean, you know, you get hired, I get hired to bring structure to these conversations, but who does it when there's nobody from the outside? You know, if the leader is trying to drive the structure of the meeting, then you, you can end up with a lot of yes people sitting around the table and just waiting for the leader to take control. 
And then who else around the table actually has the power to do it, if not the leader? It gets a little tricky. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it. I'm sure you have too. You see it so many times in teams. You know, the team will be expressing an opinion and the leader will express an opinion. And from that moment forward, the only opinions we get are ones that are aligned with the leader. We don't get any dissenting opinion after that point. And so why does that happen? And why? And why is trust, right? Because, <laughs> right. Because, because I don't trust the leader to then listen to me. The leader has spoken there, and I don't trust that what I'm going to say will be heard. Yeah. That, that happens at a subconscious level. With a healthy team, and, I, and I've, I've seen healthy teams, you've seen healthy teams. When the leader puts that thing out, a healthy team, there will, the person who, who has trust will say something, even if it's in disagreement. Right. And they'll often do it with such a lovely respect. Like, yes. I really respect your opinion. I hear why you think this one, two, three, but here's the thing I'm worried about. And they'll slide right into that other one. You're right. You're yes. absolutely right. It is fa- fascinating. It's amazing to me sometimes that teams ever work. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's do a related topic, which is about having tough conversations. And typically those involve feedback but sometimes they involve disappointment, like disappointment about not getting a promotion or a role. Tell us about your experiences in having those kind of tough conversations and what's your advice? You know, um, boy, learned some good lessons early in my career on that because it is really, really hard to give somebody some negative feedback, right? And it's really, really hard to tell them that you promoted somebody else into that role when they thought they were the ones that are going to get it. Yeah. You know, like anybody else, I stumbled through those things early on and everything. And then if a friend of mine, a mentor actually changed my perspective on it. And afterwards, not that it made it any easier, but it did make it, make it um, work a little bit better is always, always keep your mind, you know, your, your mind focused on what's at the end, right? What's the end game and what you're trying to do. The greatest thing you can do for anyone is tell them your truth. I say your truth because, mm-hmm. you know, what, what is the truth in any situation, right? Um, you know, act with candor, be honest, be open. How can anybody improve? And so if you gave somebody a promotion over somebody else, there's a reason for that. Now, I, I've seen a few situations where the reason for that was 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 not a good reason. That's, <laughs> that's a trickier situation. Well, you know, they got the promotion because they were the boss's son. Yeah. Um, you know, no, okay, that's a little trickier. But but generally speaking, in, in the corporate environment, you know, if I'm if I'm a middle manager or even a, a, a leader and I'm promoting somebody on my team, there's a reason they're getting that promotion. And there's a reason why somebody else isn't. Mm-hmm. And if you're the person that isn't and wanted it, um, then we, we, need to, we need to have a very candid conversation as to the why, because that could also be your impediment to, to getting to promotion mm-hmm. later on, mm-hmm. right? Same thing's true with feedback. If somebody's not performing, the worst thing we can do is not give them that feedback. We have, to, we have to talk with them, and there's a value in that. There's a value for them, and there's a value for me. And the message isn't always an easy one. But be prepared for the conversation. Sit down, think about how you're going to talk with them. Recognize, you know, if you know your people well enough, and shame on you if you don't, if you know your people well enough, you should be able to know how they're going to respond. Yeah. And so, so I often say that in those conversations, the leader has to be the chameleon because there are people that need the pat on the back, the hug, whatever. There are people that need the kick in the butt, you know, and, and, and get to be pushed and all that and, and everything in between. Know the person you're talking with 
and tailor your conversation to their style. Don't expect them to tailor to yours. Tailor your conversation to their style. And as hard as it is, it's the most important thing you can do. And you can't put those conversations off by having them in the moment. You give them the opportunity to turn around. Now, here's, here's the next secret, though. If okay. it's gotten to that stage, shame on you. <laughs> because that means you haven't been communicating with that person up until that point, right? If, if I'm regularly communicating with my people, there should never be a question as to whether or not they're performing. As a matter of fact, if I have really clear metrics, if, if, we, if, if, if we've had this really, really clear conversation, you know how you're being measured, then there's no surprises. And, and I would just say, look, you don't want to have those awful conversations. Set yourself up to be, for success to begin with. Make sure every person knows what performance looks like. Make sure every person knows what they need to do to get to the next level be there in support and helping them get there and also help them understand that, look, when there's five qualified people in one position, not everybody's going to get it. And lastly, recognize that sometimes when you've got five really good people and only one can get that promotion, one of the others might go somewhere else. And that's okay because you've done a great job of getting to that level where they can do it. And if you've got a great company culture, they're not going to leave if, if you're doing it right. Not for, not for just that. What they will yeah. do is leave because you didn't tell them why or how to get there or whatever. Or it looks exactly. like a bias. I see this, particularly when we start looking at diverse populations and mm-hmm. trying to build this inclusive culture. And in the absence of feedback, in the absence of candid, measurable, direct feedback about what it takes for the next level, people assume exactly as you started, ill intent. And they will start assuming that that's because you're biased against me or my something or others. And we are down a rabbit hole really quickly. That is very difficult to pull back from. And I, you know, I get so aggravated with companies because the first few levels of promotion are fairly straightforward as to why. Mm -hmm. It's usually very metric performance numbers driven, but there's that lovely moment where it's not so much numbers. It's much more your leadership, your contribution to the firm, the style which you, I mean, a whole bunch of other stuff, which we could quantify. We don't, we don't talk about that transition. And so then people are surprised. Yeah. My numbers are good. Why am I not promoted? Yeah. You know, it really, it's really important when you're defining somebody's, you know, bar for success, their measurement bar, what the qualifiers are for that. And, you know, like you said, if, if it's a first level job in a company, you know, an entry level job, that's going to be heavily metric driven. Mm-hmm. You know, are they showing up on time? Are they hitting their numbers? You know, you know, heavily metric driven. But as people move up the chain, if we're not putting in leadership targets, then shame on us. Right. And you can measure this stuff. People will say, yeah. oh, how do you measure? There, there's a million ways to measure leadership. You have to have absolute clear metrics all the way through because that takes all the biases out. Now, the last stage of it, though, is when all things are equal, all things are equal. So I I would tell you, if you treat everybody equally, if you have equal metrics, the same role across has exactly the same metrics, et cetera, you know, biases never come into play. But now you've got five people who are hitting their their marks for one one open role. Um, there will, there is a point in time that, that there is a leadership responsibility to, to ensure equity in an yeah. organization, right? I mean, 
you know, again, you want multiple perspectives. If, if, if you're the leader of a group, the, the more perspectives, and, and there, there are different perspectives that come from diversity. Yeah. If we're not leveling the playing field at that level, then, then you could easily be seen as, as a bias. I mean, you know, there used to, I came from Detroit, right? And so automotive and, you know, used to hear a story about the quote unquote, good old boys network. And it's like, if you looked at a certain leadership team, everybody was a clone of each other. Yeah. Right. Well, what happens there? It's because people are building relationships. And in some cases there, that last aspect of, of promotion, once all other items are met are who, who am I closest to? Who's my best right. friend on the team? And that's the wrong way to do it. You've got to, you've, you've got to look across a whole team and, and say, okay, you know, I've got these four or five candidates that honestly can all be there. And let's face it. If you've got one position and five candidates, you're disappointing four people. Yeah. Right. And there's just no, this is probably one of the worst situations I think for a leader sometimes is I've got to disappoint four great people and I'm going to make one happy. Well, it's, it's what you got to do. But you're right. If you've had those conversations leading up to that, I think you increase the chances that the four can take it and will stick with you and no guarantees, but you increase the chances as well. I often say to people who are asking me, you know, about particularly in the last part of career, and it is much more around these um, issues that are harder to get solid measures on, not just career performance. And I often say the issue is to make people comfortable with you. Because the more comfortable I am with you, the easier it is for me to trust you. Now, that doesn't mean turn yourself into something you're not, but there is that piece of I'm comfortable. I get you. I know how to talk to you. I know how to have the conversation with you. That is going to help with trust. At least that's my my view. All right, Chris, let's shift gears out of all this conflict and tension. And I want to talk about one of your favorite topics, which is fear. So fear that keeps people from saying what they want to say or doing what they want to do or being who they want to be. Talk to us about fear. You know, um, so there's, you know, there's two sides of a coin. There's fear and there's confidence, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you you and I've talked about this in the past and, you know, I think fear can be a really positive thing, right? Fear can be a healthy thing. Now it's a negative emotion, but I'm, I'm taking a little bit of a different tact on it today than I normally do. I was really giving it some thought lately and, and looking at this. If fear is a motivator to move you forward and we can leverage that and recognize that we can grow from it, it can be positive. If, if fear becomes the barrier, now we've got a real problem. And, and think about this. Where does fear occur the most? One in, in, in anything new. Yeah. Right. Because that's when we have a lack of confidence mm-hmm. and lack of confidence then can, you know, promote fear, which can freeze forward action. Right. As you really think about it. And it's, it's really simple change management kind of right. concept, right? Um, change only occurs when we overcome our fears and then, and then move forward. Well, I'm not sure. I, I can think of some, um, some, kind of questions or some kind you know, things that can occur that are hard for us to overcome. And maybe we never quite overcome the fear of it. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, fortunately I don't have to directly terminate people today, but it was something I never really liked. Yeah. Right. Uh, I hope does. not. Who, who, who <laughs> does. Right. There's probably, there's a few examples of people I think out there that, that, that like it, but um, the first time it's, it's really, really tough. And yet we have to recognize that if we're going to grow, we have to push through this. And so what I like to do is I like to, to kind of consider, okay, what's the best and the worst that can happen as a result of this? 
mm-hmm. and understand that the worst is almost guaranteed if I don't go down this path anyway. So mm-hmm. might as well kind of closet the fear, let the fear, it's okay, embrace it, let it be there a little mm-hmm. bit, but also overcome it. And if you don't have confidence, recognize the fact that experience will give you confidence. Mm-hmm. And so you know, the first time I ever fired anybody, I still remember that it was a horrible, horrible day in my life. I actually had to leave afterwards and, and clear my head. Um, and, and the crazy part was, is I don't even think it was a justified firing. I was forced to do it because somebody else in the organization forced me to do it because they didn't have the guts to do it. Whole nother story for another interview. Yeah. Um, but it was a good, it ended up being a good experience because I understood what it felt like emotionally to go through that with another person. And in this case, a person I actually even really liked. I mean, it was really, really hard. And the next time I had to do it, it wasn't the first time anymore. Right. That makes sense. So, you know, I I think that that simply put, fear is something that um, that we can, you know, kind of embrace and use, but we can't let it stop us. So let the adrenaline of it move you forward, but don't let it freeze you in space. Otherwise we don't get forward progress. Okay. All right. So how do you keep it from freezing you? I get that. I'm with you a hundred percent because the things that you're afraid of are the places where you're going to grow the most. Absolutely. Totally. But I'm petrified. I'm frozen. My confidence is at the rock bottom. Uh, What do I do now? You need a support network. Everyone should have a support network. You got to have a friend. You got to have a mentor. Mentors are the most, uh, uh, every person should have a mentor. I'll just say that right there. You have to have that person who's done it before that you can talk to, who can talk you off the ledge and move you forward. Because there is that point where, I mean, I can sit here and all day long tell you, oh, you just have to overcome it and suck it up and do it. There are points where you can't, you are frozen. The mentor has to help you move it through and make sure you, when choosing a mentor, you don't get somebody who's a yes person who will just quote unquote support you. It's got to be somebody who's going to push you to move forward into things. And sometimes we need multiple mentors in our life. And that to me, that's my best advice for anybody in business. Everybody should have a mentor or two in their life that'll, that'll help them progress. All right. I often get the question, how do I find a mentor? Ah. How do you answer that question? Well, you know, First of all, you have to be looking for one. Right? It's amazing how how fat, how much they show up after you look for one. And sometimes you just have to ask. You you look for people who are in the same industry, same field. Sometimes they could be a colleague at another organization. Sometimes it's a friend who's just progressed faster than you. Sometimes it's it's literally your boss in the organization, or it's another leader in the organization. But you want to find somebody who's walked that path before you, and ask. It is really as simple as asking. And, and say, you know what, I'm looking for a mentor. Would you consider being mine? Yeah. I often say to people, I'll get your reaction to this one. I often say to people, don't go looking for a mentor and label somebody as a mentor. Why don't you start with just asking for advice? Mm-hmm. You know, pick somebody you respect, you value, you think mine has a good perspective, a similar style and ask for advice. If it goes well, come back again yes. and again, and then ask them if they will be a mentor. You, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I agree with that completely. I think you have to go shopping for one. I love how you said you have to look for one and then they tend to show up. But at any rate, there we are. Chris, I think we're out of time. So wow. I could keep talking for forever because this has been fascinating. So my guest today is Chris Elias, 
who is an author, thought leader, and advisor with 20 years experience running companies in the corner office and 20 years experience advising companies. The book I highly recommend is called The Execution Culture. Results happen where culture meets execution. I think, Chris, the highlight that I take away today is this notion of how critical it is to get real, not lip service trust. I like your definition that it's both understanding the intent and the ability. Ability is the easy part. Intent is the hard part in human um, relationships and the time it takes to get to know each other to assume intent. And then layer on top of that, we know that we all genuinely believe, buy into, live by a common set of core values that guarantees that we've got some common ground on which to build trust. With that trust in place, then conflict, difficult conversations, candid feedback, managing fear, getting mentors all starts to happen. And that's going to be the engine that drives execution. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Wanda. It's a pleasure. Join us next week for more wisdom and getting out of your comfort zone. And if you'd like to know how to apply these ideas and more, check out our new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it.